Ding, 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 ding. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of The podcast in which a group of The podcast in which a group of B-Side Hello, and welcome back to B-Side. I'm Tom, and today we're going to be discussing the famous W.F. Murnau film from 1927, Sunrise. What I'm trying to talk about with this film and this B-side, I'm just trying to talk about in the the A-side podcast, has to do with this idea of naturalism compared to realism. Now, naturalism comes from a number of sources. The first time we really hear it articulated in kind of uh, an intelligent way is from Emile Zola's 1880 essay, The Experimental Novel. And in this, Zola, looking at the influences of various scientists, uh, namely Darwin, wants art to act in a way that science does. And what that means is he wants characters in a book or in a play to behave in a way that can be explained by the social and biological realities that science has uncovered. And of course, this is done after Darwin, right? So thinking about us as evolving from some some natural sources. And so this ends up being naturalism, in part because it's more like nature, but also it doesn't offer explanations outside of the real world. It does not offer the metaphysical, only the physical. Uh, Frank Norris is the, Amer- the American novelist, most famous for his book McTeague from 1899. He was very much interested in progressivism and socialist movements of the late 19th, early 20th century. And he was an advocate of naturalism within the American sphere. Now, of course, he's taking into it not just Darwin, but the social science of Marx as well, seeing that man is shaped by economic reality. However, Norris also sees realism and romanticism, so realism maybe how the world is, this sort of more inclusive term that includes naturalism and, and other things, he sees realism and romanticism as sort of bound in a dialectic, and the synthesis is naturalism. So, excuse me, Realism is not, sorry, larger than naturalism. It is one component in a dialectic whose synthesis is naturalism. That's how Norris differs a little bit because he sees romanticism as possibly existing in in this naturalistic way. However, I think the romanticism that Norris is advocating for is probably much more a... um, a return to nature style romanticism, right? I don't think it's it's quite as bodice rippy as as it sounds. I think there is a look to nature for truth element of this. However, unlike the the romantics of the late eighteenth, early nineteenth century, this romanticism is very much science inflected, right? It's very much inflected by the work of Darwin, and then of course later Marx. The reason why I bring up naturalism and romanticism and realism and all this stuff 
is that I think there is a clear connection between the work of this movie, the work that Murnau is doing in Sunrise, and the work of these earlier writers. The reason for this is the trope of the boat and the man drowning the woman in the boat. This was something that goes back to Emile Zola and his play, based on his novel, Therese Raclan, I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, in which a woman falls in love with a man who is not her husband, and her and this man drown the husband and then are haunted by his ghost. And they drown him, they take him out on a boat, and they do the deed. And Zola saw this play as an example of his philosophy, of, his, of naturalism. He saw Therese and, and her lover and her husband as these kind of psychologically rich characters determined by their natures and by the environment in which they found themselves, and therefore they behaved in this way. There's sort of an inevitability to it. Later, Theodore Dreiser, in his 1925 novel, An American Tragedy, recounts the drowning, real-life drowning of Grace Brown, whose boyfriend drowned her because she was pregnant with his child and he did not want to marry her. So he thought that he would lie and say she just fell over in the boat that they had gone out on. Um, eventually he was, he was convicted and executed. This was in the state of New York. And American tragedy, as well as a lot of Dreiser's works, are considered naturalistic. They're about people being shaped by the environment in which they found themselves. Having our main character, the man, and his wife go out on a boat with the intent of murdering her so he could be free of her, I think speaks to these past tropes that we see coming up again and again in naturalism literature, especially in, in Dreiser's and American Tragedy, which had been published in a big hit only two years before, and itself had been based upon a crime, a kind of crime of the century crime that had occurred about 20 years before that. And so to kind of take somebody out and drown them on a boat, I think is probably a direct allusion to an American Tragedy and to that world. So that's one source of Renau's movie. I think the other one, and this is this is probably very few people would contend this, is German Expressionism. Renau came from Germany. He was involved in that in that movement. Um, Nosferatu heavily borrows from German Expressionism. And what German Expressionism is, is a response to modernity in which we see typically stage plays being staged as examples of the inner psychology of the characters. So really like a pure expressionistic work would be we are inside the character's mind and we see the world through his mind. The Cabinet of Dr. Caligare is an expressionistic work in the, in the classic sense because we see everything through the mind of a person in a lunatic asylum. And at the end of the play, the, uh, excuse me, <laughs> not the play, the end of the film we cut to a realistic scene in which we see the protagonist as a mental asylum patient. And of course, that scene is realistic because now we are outside of his mind. 
Expressionism isn't strictly taking place in the damaged psychology of the protagonist. It just can borrow those images. Just as surrealism doesn't always have to be literally in a dream, but it can borrow from the dream world, that, that kind of imagery. And I think Murnau is, is clearly taking from that as well in this work. And you could see, for example, when the man meets the woman from the city and she's revealing to him the, the wonders of the city, um, she starts dancing and this, this image of the city, this kind of Times Square-looking city center appears behind her. Or the way the camera moves through the marsh when the man is going to meet the woman from the city. These are all kind of expressionistic details. Even the way the set of the city is designed, it sort of has things overlapping. It, it's not quite realistic. You, you wouldn't be in a place that that looked like that, right? It, it doesn't really um, have have a realistic structure, structural stability. That's also expressionism. Expressionism is in response historically to many different historical problems. And of course, it comes out in the 19-teens in Germany. We all know what was going on in the 19-teens in Germany. And it has that same sort of critique of the modern world that we kind of see in, in naturalism. Now, of course, naturalism isn't specifically critiquing the modern world. It's saying we should use these modern techniques to understand the nature of man. However, there is a, a critique of human society and the human individual in society in both expressionism and in naturalism. However, Murnau does something really surprising in this movie. He doesn't drown the wife. The wife survives. The wife goes on a fun boat ride with... When the boat ride isn't fun, but she goes on a fun adventure with her husband to the city where they fall in love again. I think what we're seeing here is something unique in the sense that Murnau is presenting this naturalistic framework. He's presenting this expressionistic style. However, he's subverting them. We go to the city things are great. They fall back in love. They enjoy modernity. They enjoy the dance. They enjoy the, the kind of festival, the carnival spirit of the city. The man gets to win that contest where the, the piglet comes out, which is a weird contest, but whatever. Um, they get to go dancing together. They get to have drinks. They get to really, really enjoy themselves in this kind of festival atmosphere. And I think the key to this and, and the key to why it is a celebration of modernity is after they go to the church and after the man begs forgiveness, so to, to recall, the man has decided he's not going to drown his wife, yay him, and they go to the city and he's following after her. She's kind of running from him and they end up in a church together where a wedding is going on. And while watching the wedding, the man breaks down and he asks the wife for forgiveness which she grants. They're leaving the church. They cross the, the city street. It's a busy, what looks to be a roundabout. And they imagine themselves walking through the woods. They then embrace and kiss. And we cut back to the roundabout where their kissing has caused a traffic accident. A bunch of cars, horses and buggies, bicycles have backed up. People are honking horns and are yelling at them. 
in this moment is the most distinct example of movie tone. Movie tone is the system by which this film had synchronized sound. And it was this kind of brand new technology. This was the, I believe, the first film to use it. Now, it came out two weeks after The Jazz Singer, so it was not officially the first movie to have synchronized sound. However, the synchronized sound was kind of attached to the film script, film, the film itself. It's a little hard to explain, but basically it was a, a more, it was, it was a stabler form of technology, I guess you could say, than what the jazz singer did, which basically had, had a record playing at the same time as the film. And what we see here is that they finally come back together and they kiss. And in that kiss, in the city, in this magical place, there is suddenly a demonstration of modern technology. And it's celebratory, right? I mean, they're honking, they're yelling at the, the couple, whatever. But it all coincides with a moment of reconciliation, right? It's a refutation or a rejection, rather, of the naturalistic man is this kind of apish thing that is is damned to live out this Darwinian life whose self-interest is subverted and exploited by the capitalist, blah, blah, blah. Here, we see the wonderful, beautiful, somewhat mechanized modern city filled with technology as being a wonderland, as a place to go to to reconnect and fall in love again. And I think in this, Murnau is doing something really interesting. And I think he's kind of rejecting, in classic 20s style, the, the pessimism of the past decade, uh, the past few decades. He's rejecting the pessimism of, I, I won't say Darwin, because I don't think Darwin's pessimistic, but the followers of Darwin. He's rejecting the pessimism of Marx, certainly, I think. In this moment, we see a connection between the advancing world, the modern world, pleasure, and redemption from our animal nature. The wonders of the city, far from being a bar to happiness, invigorate these individuals. It offers them solace from the things that they were before, regenerating that romantic sense of adventure. The urban is this, this celebration of the climb out of and from nature. Or maybe we might say the film celebrates the compatibility of the natural world of the farm and the urban playground. This has been B-Side.